This morning scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage wherein you interact with the religious leaders, and you tell us some actually very hard things. Lord, it's easy to want to close our hearts and our minds to this And we pray that you would soften them now. We ask that you would allow us to be in a state of humility before you and receive whatever you want to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray that it would not be the things that I say, but you would give us ears to hear you speaking to the depths of our being this morning. All for your glory, we pray. Amen. I ask you a question. What's more important, who we are or what we do. Here's how Pastor Noel Heikinen answered that in his book, Unchained, that just came out a little earlier this year. He writes, down through history, the predominant viewpoint has been that what we do determines who we are. We've all heard the old adage, you are what you eat. This isn't a new school of thought. Aristotle wrote, we are what we repeatedly do. A recent TED Talk declared, you are what you tweet. Each one of these proclamations 
while carrying a significant nugget of truth, gets the core message of the gospel backward. Frank Zappa, of all people, got it right. You are what you is. In other words, it's not what we do that determines who we are. Rather, who we are determines what we do. This is the biblical paradigm. And this quote from Heikkinen ties in very well with our text today in Mark 7, and our text breaks very neatly into two large sections. You can see it this way. The first 13 verses, you have Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders, and then verses 14 to 23 is his teaching on purity, because that's, that's kind of what lies behind this, purity and approaching a pure and holy God. So, let's start with the first five verses. We're in we learn about this thing called the tradition of the elders. And I'll read it again for you, even though you just heard it. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders." When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Okay, now, it's really easy to think that, okay, the religious leaders from Jerusalem who've made another 90-mile trip down to Capernaum, they are very serious in going after Jesus. You may think that they're concerned about Jesus' disciples' hygiene, kind of like when you go into a restaurant and you see a sign like this about washing your hands if you're an employee before going back into the kitchen. That is not what this is about at all, because the ceremonial washing part of the tradition of the elders, with such a tiny amount of water, you're not getting any germs off your hands. I mean, it, it is so minuscule of amount. There's nothing about hygiene. And what, the, what this is, is it comes from, the Bible doesn't say anything about God's people everywhere need to be washing their hands before eating food. What it does say is that the priest were required to wash their hands symbolically before leading in worship. Okay, so that's what God's Word says, but what happens is a tradition is built up around that, and the religious leaders sought to take that. That's a good thing. God's a holy God, and it's good to be reminded that priests should wash their hands beforehand. We're going to apply that to all of Israel, and we're going to wash everything. We're going to wash our hands. We're going to wash cups. We're going to wash pitchers. We're going to wash all the time. And so this concept of the tradition of the elders, what it was was an oral law surrounding the Word of God. And so it would take things like this, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The tradition of the elders would then say, okay, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? And they would ask hundreds and hundreds of questions about that thing. For instance, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath, therefore honoring it and keeping it holy? And you get all kinds of things surrounding that in the oral tradition. For example, how far can you walk on the Sabbath and you're keeping the law? 
How much can you entertain guests on the Sabbath, or can you entertain guests at all on the Sabbath, or does that then become work? Okay, those are obviously expected things. I mean, it got into things even like this, and I'm not making this up. Can you pick your nose on the Sabbath? That's in the Mishnah. And if you're interested, no, you can't, because that is considered work on the Sabbath and picking your nose. So, I mean, it literally, hundreds and hundreds of questions on what you can and cannot do. And if you're interested in why that's work, I'll tell you later. But, um, so the religious leaders define many things this way, and that's what is the tradition of the elders. Not what the Bible says specifically in the law, but the tradition surrounding it. And the religious leaders go to Jesus and they attack Jesus, not his disciples, you'll notice. They don't go to the disciples and accuse them of this. They go directly to Jesus. What they're seeking to do is discredit Jesus in front of the eyes of the community, seeking to publicly shame him How dare you allow those you're teaching, Jesus, to not follow the traditions of the elders as all Israel does? They want to discredit him and shame him. And in an honor culture, that was a big deal. They want to cast him to the side. It'd kind of be like, think about this. The Bible tells us to pray. The Bible does not tell us that we must kneel when praying And it does not tell us, here's a tradition that the church has. A tradition is this, when we pray, all eyes closed, all heads bowed. Okay, that can be a very helpful tradition, but it's not required. And so imagine somebody from the PCA offices in Atlanta came into Stonebridge one day and said, they interrupted the worship service, Rick, what are you doing? There are plenty of people worshiping at Stonebridge who don't bow their heads and close their eyes during prayer. Why don't you teach them this important thing? It would be an attack, and it's an attack on something that actually is a tradition, not something that's in the Word of God itself. So, Jesus then, this is the attack, Jesus counters in two different ways. And this is all part of that first section. First, we see what he does is he says, you guys are hypocrites and you encourage hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus gets right in their face. He replied in verses 6 and 7, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So this is the first charge. You guys are hypocrites, and you're teaching others to be hypocrites too. You have made rules that you follow and that you require everyone else to follow, but what happens in the process of following all your rules, you actually fail to worship God sincerely. Now, it's, let me give you an example because it's easy for us to say, well, we wouldn't do that, would we? Okay, so during the singing of our opening hymn, Holy, 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 I guarantee you that as we are singing these beautiful words of our holy God, it's very easy for you to have three other things on your mind. 
You're thinking about the groceries. You're thinking about what you're going to do for lunch. You're thinking about what your plans are for the afternoon. You're thinking about the fight the kids had this morning. You're thinking about all kinds of things during the singing of this hymn. And in that moment, technically, we are hypocrites because we are mouthing words of praise to a holy, righteous God, singing, there is no one like you. And we join our songs with the angels and the saints above, and yet we're thinking about the groceries. In that moment, we are being hypocrites because our mouths are wording something, and yet our hearts and our minds are completely somewhere else. We do this in many other ways. Jesus is saying, you guys look good, you guys sound good, but you are actually very far from the heart of God. Outwardly, it looks as if you are worshiping, but inwardly, your heart and mind are far away. And then Jesus goes on. His next charge is this. Your traditionalism actually negates the Word of God, and traditionalism is one form of legalism. Legalism is a big word that encompasses many different things. Traditionalism is one of them. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human, human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Now, this can be a little confusing. I'm going to try and say it briefly and hopefully clearly. There is a difference between tradition and and traditionalism. You see, every community has to apply the Word of God to different situations in life because it doesn't spell out how we are to think or behave or interact in every single little specific way. And so we have to apply the Word of God, and when we seek to do that, traditions develop. Jesus is not here rejecting tradition that comes that way, What he is criticizing is the tradition of the elders, what they had done. You see, societies, actually, we need tradition in order to function. I'll give you just a simple example. One of our traditions at Stonebridge is that we meet for worship at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. That's a tradition. It's a good tradition because if we didn't have that tradition, say we'd tried this. Okay, after today, Stonebridge, we're going to meet whenever the Spirit prompts us. Whenever the music team feels like showing up and we decide there's enough people here. You know, it may be 9, it may be 3, it may be 7.30 at night. We don't know. We're just going to see. If we do that and say we're not going to have that tradition of meeting at 9 and 10.30, then most likely you're going to find a church with a tradition of meeting at a certain time. You know, the whole thing about uh, churches that meet at 11, that's an old tradition. And why is 11 o'clock prime time on Sunday mornings? It goes all the way back to farming, and so that people could go out, do all their chores on the farm, milk the cows, everything else, because the amount of time it took, they could then actually get in the wagon and get to church by 11. It was just a tradition. It wasn't like, you know, there's nothing 
sacred about 11 a.m. There's nothing sacred about 9 or 10.30 a.m. It's just a tradition. The time that we worship is something that we can change, and that's okay. What Jesus is criticizing is the traditions of the elders that now are being held on par as equal in authority to God's Word itself. Okay, so let me just spell this out. God's Word tells us we are to meet and worship together corporately. We need to obey that. But if we say that, thus saith the Lord, we are to meet on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. exclusively, that is promoting a tradition to the equal authority of Scripture, and now it becomes traditionalism. Jesus actually takes this concept of raising something to the equal authority of Scripture a step farther and says, you don't just do that. You actually are allowing your traditionalism to create loopholes in the law of God so that you don't have to follow it in different ways. And that's this whole thing of Corbin. All Corbin means is devoted or dedicated or given. That's all it means. And so here's how it would work. Land was a huge part of Israel's heritage and their identity as a nation and everything else. And so there's all kinds of things surrounding land. Sometimes people would say, I have dedicated my land to God. And what that meant was at a certain time in the future when they die, their land would actually go to the temple and be taken over. What Jesus is addressing here is that you religious leaders, if somebody does that, you are saying to someone who then, a parent, because honor your father and mother, this is the fifth commandment, and it goes far beyond just showing respect. Jews knew this wasn't just showing respect. This was caring for parents as they age. This is providing for them financially. This is providing for them physically and residentially in all kinds of ways. And yet, if you declared your land Corbin, dedicated to God, and your parent got in dire financial straits, a good Israelite could go and say, I need to use the land because my parent is in dire financial straits. And the religious leader is like, no, you can't. You've dedicated that to God. You can't break that vow. It's a very selfish thing here. They wanted the land. They wanted the prophets. And so, a parent who's supposed to be honored now cannot be taken care of because of this tradition of Corbin. That's what Jesus is getting at. You are creating loopholes, and actually it was more sinister than even what I just described there. Sometimes people would do this very intentionally. They would say, I don't want to take care of my parents. I'm going to dedicate my land as Corbin, because you still got to use it yourself in different ways, and they would do it so that they wouldn't have to. And Jesus says, this entire thing nullifies the entire spirit of the law of honoring mother and father. Now, it's very easy for us to mock the Pharisees, to mock the scribes and the religious leaders for putting tradition on equal par or even before God's Word. But know this, we can do the same thing. We can violate in the church every love one another passage because we are judging somebody for their dress. We can violate every love one another passage because we have a different 
opinion of what constitutes the best music to worship God with on Sunday mornings. And so what we do is we lift something up and we violate love one another and we have worship wars. Christians can be very quick to call out, protest, or boycott certain sins while remaining silently tolerant of others. We have our own list of these are respectable sins and these are very unrespectable sins, and we'll call these out vigorously, and these we'll just kind of give a wink and a nod to, and it's okay. Christians can set up all kinds of legalistic traditions regarding movies, card games, dancing, alcohol, lipstick, music, even what food you can eat, which is really ironic, and neglect the weightier matters of the gospel itself. Why do we do this? And this is not meant to be offensive, but it's meant to illustrate, because it is far easier to keep our own traditions and feel good about it than it is to truly follow God's Word you realize it's much easier to only watch movies of a certain rating than to love our enemies. You cannot go to a whatever, but it's really hard to love your enemies. You know, my wife and I are all for, to the best degree possible, not buying meat from factory farms. But it's a whole lot easier to do that than to cultivate mercy in our hearts true mercy. It's easier to insist on a certain type of Christmas Eve service than to give generously to those in need in the community. You see, we have all kinds of ways that we do this regularly. It's not a matter of externals. It's a matter of the heart. Denominations can get very sectarian and accuse and blast every other denomination out there because of some fine point of theology and ignore all of the commonality that we share and divide. You know, when you try to be a bridge, this is the funny thing about, you know, just a side note for us because one of our values is build bridges of grace. When you try to be a bridge or be a bridge builder, you realize bridges get walked on both ways. So, there's a whole, I think there's a whole sermon in that somewhere, but um, Jesus ends with what I'll call the heart of the matter, verses 14 to 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. this these are very significant words. Jesus is really emphasizing this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. 
All these evils come from inside. That's what defiles a person. Jesus is trying to help his, under, his disciples understand that closeness with God is not about externals and external cleanness. It's about the state of our heart. And the problem, well, one of the problems with the traditions of the elders was it only addressed the exterior, the outside, and cleaning from the outside in never works. I've got this bottle of water. If I squeeze this bottle of water, what comes out? Why, why did it come out? What? Well, yeah, duh. Water came out. And why did it come out? Because you squeezed it, dummy. Okay, so why did wa- let me ask it this way. Why did water come out of this rather than grape juice or Kool-Aid or motor oil? Well, for one, our property superintendent's right there, and obviously, you know, I'm not going to squeeze motor oil on the carpet. (laughs) I have a proper fear of Odie. (laughs) But the other reason is because it's a very simple illustration why Pepsi or Kool-Aid or motor oil doesn't come out is because water is what was on the inside. You squeeze the bottle, what's on the inside comes out of the bottle. Jesus is saying similarly, what's on the inside is what comes out. Now, now, listen to this carefully here. I'm just going to choose one sin. Let's talk about pornography. Huge problem among men and women. Looking at pornography is sinful, but that is not technically what defiles you. I'm not, no, don't hear me, I need to say this. I am in no way saying it's okay to look at porn. But the looking at the porn is not technically what defiles you. Your lust, your impure thoughts and fantasies, your desires apart from God, and a whole host of other things that are in your heart is what causes the defilement. The looking at the porn is merely an overflow of squeezing the heart. So don't blame it on, this is what defiled me. No, the reality is, you had all that garbage inside. And that is the problem. That's what defiles you. Yeah, porn's bad, but that's not what caused the impurity in your life, and that's not what separates you from God. What separates you from God and causes the utter defilement is you have all that garbage inside. Jesus isn't talking about the physical heart pumping blood. He's talking about the center of the person. When he talks about heart, he's referring to the core of our being, where all of our motivation comes from, where all of our deliberation comes from, where all of our intention comes from. And in verses 21 to 23... After he says evil thoughts, he lists six specific actions, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, and malice. And then he lists six specific characteristics. So you have actions, then you have attitudes or characteristics. Those six characteristics are deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. That is a bad list. And you know what we like to do in church? 
Those people who have that, those are really bad people. Here's the really bad news. That list is every single one of us in this room. Myself, first and foremost. It's not an exhaustive list either. I think there's something significant. Jesus giving six actions, six attitudes. They're representative. There's a whole lot of garbage. That list, that's not the people in Charlottesville exclusively. It's not the politicians in Washington, D.C. exclusively. It's not the police. It's not this. It's not that. That's us. It's not out there. It's in here. You look at porn because your heart is filled with sexual immorality. You don't tithe or share with the poor because your heart is filled with stinginess, greed, or coveting. You erupt when wronged by another person because your heart is filled with pride. You cheat because deceit fills your being. Our hearts are a mess. You see, Jesus disagrees with the religious leaders about the source of the uncleanness. It's not the outside, it's the inside. He also doesn't like how they try to fix the problem. Just do all this stuff and look good. But he does not in any way disagree that we have a heart problem. We are unclean. We're unclean because of our hearts, and we cannot fix the problem. Everything we try will be painting the surface, not addressing what's really inside. I'm going to ask the music ministry team to go ahead and come forward right now, but stay with me for a moment here, because I want to end with this, and it's a longer illustration, but I think it gets at this. I was reminded of this because one of the books we're reading among the pastors and those who plan the services, Tim Keller has a book on Mark. And he remind, in his section on this passage, he reminded me of a sermon that I heard while in seminary by a guy named Ray Dillard, who was an Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary. And you can actually go find this sermon of Ray Dillard's online, and I highly recommend it to you to listen to. But it's about Ezekiel, I mean, Ezekiel, Zechariah, I want to say Ezekiel. It's about Zechariah chapter 3. No, yeah, Zechariah chapter 3. And here's what happens in Zechariah 3. In a very short way, there's a high priest named Joshua. There's only one high priest of Israel. And on the Day of Atonement, which was the high holy day of all of Israel's calendar, the high priest went through a liturgy to get ready to come into the most holy presence of God. There were different phases of the temple. And the innermost, most holy part is what was called the Holy of Holies. And no one was allowed in there except the high priest. And even the high priest was only allowed in the Holy of Holies one day out of the entire year. And so I'm going to abbreviate this, but here's what the priest would do. A whole week before going into the Holy of Holies, they would take the priest out of his home and seclude him so that he wouldn't touch anything unclean, so that he wouldn't eat anything unclean, and they would literally bring his meals to him. It sounds like a deal, doesn't it? And because they would ensure that nothing unclean is going to pass the high priest's lips. And during that week, the high priest would do nothing but spend time in prayer and in the Word of God. And as the week goes on, 24 hours before the Day of Atonement, he doesn't sleep. 
All he does is read the Word and pray nonstop, seeking to purify his heart before a holy God. And then, here's what happens on the Day of Atonement. He gets dressed in these white linens, pure, spotless, no stain, no blemish, and he goes into the Holy of Holies. And what he does before getting dressed, he actually washes. So he takes a bath. There are these screens set up in the presence of all of Israel. He goes and he takes a bath. They can see him washing just behind the screens, and then they dress him in these pure white clothes. And then he goes in and he sacrifices for his own sins. And he comes out, and he takes another bath, washing again, dressing in separate white linen clothes, and then he goes in and makes another sacrifice for the priest. And then he comes out again, takes another bath, is dressed in another set of pure white clothes, and goes in a third time and sacrifices for the sins of the people of Israel. There's, all of this is done in the presence of God's people because the priest must be pure, the priest must be holy. And here's what happens. Joshua the high priest, Zechariah, has this vision of Joshua in the Holy of Holies, and he's standing in the presence of God, and he's not dressed in white anymore. His white clothes are covered in excrement. And Zechariah is horrified. How did that happen? The priest is offering, and he has filth and defilement head to toe on his body. That can't happen. The nation of Israel wouldn't allow it to happen. What's going on. Zechariah is given a vision of what Joshua the high priest actually looks like before a holy God. God is so holy. Even all of that ritual purification throughout the week, Joshua comes before and he's covered in excrement. It was a reminder that you can do all kinds of things externally and it doesn't address the problem. And Ray Diller, very beautifully in the sermon of his, says, there was another day of atonement when another high priest with the exact same name, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, he had a day of atonement. And a week leading up to it, and Ray Diller does this amazing job of doing a comparing and contrasting of about how everything was radically different between the two. And what happened on Jesus' day of atonement was the filthy garments covered in excrement that are ours before a holy God are placed on Jesus so that Jesus' pure garments can be given to us. You see, we can't do anything about the problem of our heart, but He has, and He did by laying down His life, His perfect life, so that we could be His. Brothers and sisters, we have a real problem. But the good news is this. There is no one who is too dirty. There is no one who is too defiled that you cannot be made clean by the work of Jesus. His mercy and grace is available to you today. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The work of Jesus is what creates that clean heart and gives you a living heart, not a heart of stone.